Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Hello, shedders, and welcome back to the podcast for shedders. I'm feeling quite relieved to be out of lockdown in my part of Australia. Love to know how you're going out there. We've been putting together this episode just for you, for home shedders and community shedders, for the love of shedding. Here's what we'll be talking about in this episode. Tool sharpening. We'll get some tips from a specialist who fears this knowledge is at risk of being lost as time goes on. Uh, How organised is your shed? Well, for some people, getting organised, or at least trying to, has been a fabulous lockdown challenge. Our shed in the spotlight is the Albany Shed in southern Western Australia. Now, how's your hairline? You're certainly not alone if it's receding a bit, or a lot. We're talking about male baldness in Ask the Doc, featuring Professor Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Male. Daryl Braithwaite is my special guest, an awesome performer. Remember Sherbet in the 70s? I think you'll enjoy our chat. You know, we've been friends uh, since the late 60s, actually. And Fishing with Butch, another one of my favourite pastimes, and I know I'm not alone there. Well, we've vacuumed up all the sawdust, we've opened up the bag to let the stuff out, and who was in there? Rip Woodchip. We'll be hearing from him a little later on, too. By the way, if you have a friend you think would be interested in being a part of our little podcast family, put them onto it. AMSA, the Australian Men's Shed Association, and a lot of shedders are listening on uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts too. And don't forget, all of our past episodes are online at menshed.org. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders, so shed all your cares and woes and listen in. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. From the mailbag, otherwise known as the inbox, this note came in from Donny Osborne. Oh, if only it was that. No, it's not. It's not that Donny Osborne, I'm afraid. We are all in survival mode, says Donny, with this virulent strain of the virus. But that doesn't stop us from putting a positive spin on our situation. Sure, we're all old farts. But that doesn't mean we have to stop being creative or community-spirited or just being nice to others. No grumpy old men here, he says. Doesn't mean we have to stop being productive either. I'm talking about producing widgets or ideas, other things that get projects built. Our shed at Bangalore is closed until it's safe again, but some blokes have workshops at home and can obtain a positive outcome by being productive at home and stay safe. I'm attaching a pic of some stuff that's occupied my time while in lockdown in hope that it will inspire others to get a positive outcome from this negative period in all our lives. Cheers from Donny. And you can view that photo on uh, menshed.org. On the tools. On the Shed Wireless. With John Paul Young. I'm sure I don't have to tell you about the importance of keeping your tools in good shape and keeping a blade sharp. But as plenty of us shedders know, 
that's not always easy to achieve. I think you'll agree that tool sharpening is quite the art. I, I, I do sharpen my own knives and you'll find out maybe I've been doing it wrong. Listen up because on the tools this time around, we're going to try and learn a thing or two from a bloke who took himself off to the United States to learn how to sharpen tools. And he fears that the art of sharpening is in danger of being lost in Australia. But he'd like to see that change. Phil Weber, welcome to the podcast. Firstly, I understand you have a collection of old hand saws and a very nice man shed. Tell us about that. Okay, so the the man shed started quite a few years ago, mainly to build uh, extra bedroom, come office, come garage, which just turned into a man shed. And then, no lie, my neighbour, who's a bit of a garage sailor, we call it, we go sailing, and we started going garage collecting and started collecting all this old artefacts, and that's how the man shed grew to all these old hand saws and chisels and hammers and, oh, too much. Well, they say one man's junk and another man's treasure. So I have got a quite a f- bit of artefacts. And then because I'm a sharpener and dealing with a lot of barbers and hairdressers, mm-hmm. I started collecting a lot of, uh, uh, the Americans call it uh, razors or shavers, and here in Australia, only country in the world we call it, Cutthroat, I think it came around from the Cutthroat gang way back in the day. So I have a, a wide collection of Cutthroat razors. Beautiful stuff. I mean, I actually, I, you just uh, pricked my memory then. I remember quite a few years ago, I was in the uh, little Spanish island of Ibiza mm-hmm. and, uh, and I heard this whistle going on outside the, the hotel and I looked down and it was a guy on a on a, on a bike, on a push bike, and he had all these things hanging off the bike, and he was the local sharpener. Yes. yes. Doing his rounds. <laughs> How did you get into sharpening? Um, I had a very successful hair care wholesaling business, and we imported hair care products, and we sold bobby pins and cotton wools and disinfectants all to hairdressing salons. I sold that business, and I got into sharpening due to the fact that all the hairdressers knew me and they trusted me because they knew me and I learned to under sharpening while I went overseas and learned sharpening. And then I just go around to the salons and sharpen their scissors like the guy you met. And a lot yep. of my clients call me a tinker. Yes. Because I drive a, like a hillbilly truck with a, with a generator on the side and I start to generate up. And then that generator actually brings me business because people come across and go, oh, you're a sharpener. How long are you going to be here sharpening for? Can I bring my equipment to be sharpened. Oh, I know. It's, uh, it really is the holy grail for anybody that uh, is not very good at doing it themselves. If they can find somebody like yourself, it's just wonderful. <laughs> yes, my trainer called it the art of sharpening because it, it is a little bit of an art. I'm it, sure it is. It does take a little bit of uh, learning and perseverance. You know, The good thing about sharpening, if you get the wrong angle, you regrind away again until you get the right angle. And I'm always keen to get taught uh, other sharpenings because I never forget I was uh, coming through Corindai on the way to Tamworth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business is fairly new, and I pulled into a saddler. And I said, oh, the saddler must have scissors. He's cutting up leather and all that. He was a little bit standoffish because he, he, he knew how to sharpen his own tools. And I actually learned something from the leatherer. He showed me his tools. I said, geez, man, this, 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 these leathering uh, scrapers and things like that, that they, they thin the leather off and are exceptionally sharp. And then he showed me how to get your chisel or your blade sharp by running it along a piece of leather that he stuck on a board. And I actually bought it from him. So it's, a, it's just a wooden board with a piece of leather stuck onto it, the shiny part of the leather sh- uh, facing up, and he put a little bit of cutting compound on that 
and you drag your tool across that. I use that to finish off the knife. So once I sharpen the knife up, or we, I sharpen it's called bring the burr back up on the knife, yep. we polish it up, and then we drop it on this board and leather. We drop and slide it, and it brings it up razor sharp. Well, you know, you've just uh, pricked my memory once again because I remember as a boy in, uh, in Glasgow, that was standard kit for the barber. It was a, uh, a leather yes. strap, yes. probably about a metre long, and it was hanging somewhere near the barber's chair, and I remember them picking up that strip of leather and, with their cutthroat razor and giving it the, the flick over with the, um, with the razor. With the strop, yes. So the strop, yeah, with the strop. That's what it was called, a strop. A strop, yes. I've got a couple of strops. And, yes, so I'd encourage all my, 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 my chefs sometimes because they'd normally use a wand, and I always try it, which a wand is a steel. Yes. It has different grit as well, and uh, um, they flick their knife back and forth, back and forth to bring the, the knife sharp again. And I always say to them, you should use a leather strop because it's more accurate for the angle, and you can drag and slide that knife very nicely, like the cutthroat razor or the the strop that you've seen before. Yes, right. And, and what what's the compound that you use? Very light cutting pound you can buy from most car places. Uh, yeah. Oh, like the, the the cutting polish. Yes, that's correct. Yes, that's ah, correct. Okay. So you just you rub that onto it, and yeah, uh, um, yes. Yeah, so a lot of people ask me, you know, how you sharpen this, how you sharpen that. Uh, a lot of sharpeners in Australia do keep a lot of their sharpening skills a secret. Uh-huh. Because they don't actually want to get it out to the general, to the other sharpeners of, of what's their, what they use. Yes, just like chicken sexing. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. So, yeah, but over the years, you know, I've, I've, I've learnt and uh, there's some great inventions out there. And so, and the main tool we use for sharpening knives is a belt. Like a, uh, the Americans call it alumina oxide belt or aluminum oxide belt. Uh, it's a little bit dangerous. Is it a belt sander? Yes, like a belt sander, uh, and yeah, and then you 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 put the knife onto the belt against the grain. As I say, the belt's actually coming towards you. So you have other sharpening equipment like a tormac. Uh, it's a water wheel sort of. They they a little bit too slow. So, but they do a fantastic job. Right. So now you you went to America to learn some of this stuff. I actually Googled first time in my life. I actually Googled, did use Google. Mm-hmm. And found a gentleman in Miami up there and uh, flew across before the this, this stuff hit the world and went a couple of times uh, back to, 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 to Lenny. His name was Lenny. And he taught me the art of sharpening because every time I went back, I said, Lenny, I wanted to learn how to do knives or I want to learn how to do dog blades. And he kept on saying, Phil, you, you're a scissors sharpener. You should stick with scissors. <laughs> but I said... I'm getting all this high demand. People want me to sharpen the stuff, Lenny. So, so we, he, he made a few sharpening equipment up for me and showed me how to make it up. And then we, we used the belt system and other systems and whatever, whatever works. If it works, use it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, again, I, I've got a little story about because I was an apprentice sheet metal worker. Oh, yes. And uh, we worked with stainless steel. Uh, we built a lot of the uh, stainless steel trains, and uh, wow. the biggest bugbear of uh, of that was was sharpening your drills. And uh, there was one tradesman who had a very rough way of doing it, and he basically just jammed this thing against a sharpening stone and, and ground the the bejesus out of it. And then, uh, and it always seemed to last longer than <laughs> a professional sharpening. <laughs> 
Well, it's a good point you dragged on because I have had lots of requests to sharpen drill bits. They say to your viewers out there, I'm not that great on drill bits. And if somebody could teach me uh, old school how to sharpen drill bits, I'd be very appreciative because while I was in America, I was speaking to Lynn and said, mate, I've been requested to sharpen bloody drill bits. And I've YouTubed how to do it and all that. And he said, no, don't waste your time. There's a product out there called a Drill Doctor. You can use this little machine. It is not a bad machine for handyman, but when you're doing a lot of drill bits, it's not a great machine. And yeah, I have seen guys get a bench grinder like you have, a handheld grinder, and zips it on a drill bit, and it's sharp. And yeah. a lot of traders are not getting taught this anymore. So, you know, it, it is definitely a skill that you can get a drill bit out and just put it on a hand grinder, and you can bring it up to a sharp point. Yes, it was amazing. It was a, it was a real revelation for, for us because I, I think I was in my third year of the apprenticeship before this guy actually turned up, and he wasn't a bona fide tradesman. He was, uh, he was a guy who basically learned on the, on the job, and, uh, and he, everybody went to him when they needed their, their drill sharpened because he just – he just had this way of doing it, and it looks so simple. It does. It looks but so to try and do it yourself, you know, it was different, yeah. yeah and there's so many angles on that drill bit that you've got to do is well. But so I, like I said, I got taught on scissors. I mainly focus on scissors because to your viewers, they'd be, they won't realise there's, there's actually 16 parts to a scissor. Wow. Yeah. And so I got taught all that. The guy was really knowledgeable, and I'm so glad he did taught me. And then in the end, I love how the Americans say, they say, you got it. That's it. You got it. You got it. You got it. So basically what you need, uh, you need a sharpening stone. The sharpening stones have been around for many years and then they are fantastic. And you get all different types of grit, which is the, the coarseness of the stone. And if you've got time on your hands, definitely the stone is fantastic. Right. Because I met her, there was a guy here in Newcastle and he was actually giving up smoking cigarettes. And he said, Phil, I want to learn how to sharpen my knives. And I'm, I'm bored. And every time I go outside my fish and chip shop, I have a cigarette. I said, well, you've got a good point there. I'll give you a sharpening stone. And, and, and I taught him how to use the sharpening stone. And most people don't realize you've got to actually do a figure of eight on the sharpening stone. Oh, I see. Yeah. Everybody drags and slides it. A lot of people put oil on the stone. The problem with putting oil on your stone, it builds up a lot of gunk with the oil. Yes. So you can't beat just a little bit of water in a spray bottle or you oh, okay. use a, a, a running water, put under a tap, and then you get the right angle on the knife around about 27-degree angle, roughly around there. It depends on the thickness of the knife or if it's a filleting knife or is a, you know, a, ch a chopper, and uh, away you go. And this he, he, he has not seen me in two years. I spoke to him the other day. He's definitely getting off smoking and because I sharpen his own knives on a stone. <laughs> well, that is a great tip indeed you know just that knowing uh, to do it in a figure eight is fabulous yeah you've got to do the figure of eight because it's like drops and slides uh, um, and you've got to try keep your stone square after a while like a level on top and you can't get another stone that you actually run the one one stone underwater and you use the other stone and it, and it keeps that stone level because what happens over a period of time of sharpening the stone hollows out it gets hollow yes i've seen that yes and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I just saw this uh, wonderful program on the, the ABC about, I can't remember the name of the stone, but it was a stone that was taken from uh, outback Queensland and uh, it was used by Indigenous people. It was called the Star of something and I can't remember. And, uh, and it was just incredible because uh, this thing had been used for thousands and thousands of years 
to sharpen uh, all all of their ac- uh, their axes and their uh, you know uh, spears and whatever what what have you. Yeah, it was incredible. Yes, and even today, back in the day, they all they used to do is sharpen their knives on good concrete. They used to drag their knives on the back step, and some of the old houses you can actually see where they've actually sharpened their kitchen knives on the back step. It's actually worn away. <laughs> yep. Well, Phil, thank you very much for that. That's been very informative. Indeed. I'm sure that plenty of people out there have uh, picked up a, a few tips on this. Yeah, I think the tip of the day is the leather strop uh, yep. on the board and the sharpening stones. There's some great – they used to be made in Australia. There's some great sharpening stones out there that you can use. Uh-huh. And don't don't use oil. Um, you know, my, my, my grandfather used to spit on his stone. I used to be calling back and say, Opa. Opa used to get the spit, spit on the stone and sharpen your knives. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Phil. We'll okay. speak again. No, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. How's your hairline? Don't you reckon it's strange how some of us start going bald in our 20s and yet some lucky blokes still have luscious locks into their golden years? Well, I've still got my hair, but... I've probably got other problems to worry about. Anyway, it's time to confront another one of those male taboo topics, possibly not quite as taboo as Prostate 101, which we talked about in the last episode of The Shed Wireless. I'll hand you over to our Ask the Doc guru, Professor Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Male, and Stuart Torrance, who was the Men's Health Project Officer with the Australian Men's Shed Association. Take it away, boys. Thanks, JP Way. G'day, everybody. I'm Stuart Torrance, the Men's Health Project Officer from the Australian Men's Shed Association. Today, we're looking at baldness or balding. Uh, depending on where you are in the cycle of hair loss, uh, we see treatments and offers on TV all the time. Uh, some sound like they're magical cures. But can baldness be stopped, reversed, or dare we say, grow new hair? To discuss this question and many more things, we're joined by Ask the Doctors, Professor Rob McLaughlin, Medical Director of Healthy Male. Welcome, Rob. Hi, g'day, Stuart. How are you going? Not too bad. How's your hair? Is it receding, Rob? Well, you know, yes, it is. <laughs> and I thank, <laughs> my father. I thank my father for that. Uh, uh, I started to lose it, you know, in my sort of late 30s, I think. And I've got those, you know, the, the big temples and the helicopter pad on top. <laughs> and I always, I always tell my children it's a sign of wisdom and age and maturity. Um, but more importantly, it's a sign that I've got testosterone. We'll, we'll come to that. But it, it shows you're virile. Virile <laughs> men you go, go ball. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> There's a positive. Rob, yeah. um, look, my hair's not too bad. I've got slight receding on both sides. I'm, you know, in my 50s. I think I'm doing good. But my son, who's in his 30s, however, mate, he's going thinner and thinner by the day. Yeah. Um, he, he says he goes to the shower and he sees a heck of a lot of hair on the bottom of the shower each morning. And yeah. it really does concern him. And yeah. um, he's he's been looking for treatments and, and so on. So I, I'm really interested in this subject, Rob. Yeah. What can we do about it? What's it all about? I had the same experience uh, with my two guys. When, when they were younger, they used to have a bit of a go at me about, you know, getting thin on top, but they don't make jokes like that anymore because it's starting to resonate with them as well. And, uh, you know, grey hairs and a bit of hair loss in the shower. Uh, look, male pattern uh, baldness, or here's a nice word for you, androgenetic alopecia. There you go. That's what it's oh, called. I've androgenetic al- alopecia. 
I've heard uh, of alopecia. And, that's yeah. that's total well, hair loss, isn't it? Andro, yeah. Well, that's loss of hair. Androgenetic. That means it's coming from androgens. It's coming from the male hormone. It's coming from the male side of things. So it's it's based in the male, and every man gets it. I mean, all men lose hair as they get older. Uh, <clears throat> those guys, you know, who are still seventy five at the yacht club, for a full head of hair. You hate those guys because for some reason they haven't lost as much as you have, um, and you're wearing a hat and they're out there with their, you know, and so on. But uh, it usually starts uh, on the temples or the top of the head, the, the back of the head. It can go mild, uh, mildly or it can go quite severely. And you can have men who are really very bald in their 40s. And uh, uh, it's something I guess most guys just adjust to. You find early on they kind of shave their hair or, you know, they go for the, the number one or number two cut early on and get, get ahead of it because uh, they're sort of the, the comb-over type uh, uh, thing, you know, it can be a bit disturbing for everybody. So uh, most guys come to grips with it eventually because there isn't a great deal you can do to, you know, to permanently change it. Uh, we come to hair transplants later on. I mean, that's an expensive and grueling process, but there is all the possibility of that. And you'll know lots, lots of rock stars have, have uh, lots of hair, but it's usually from a hair transplant. Um, uh, you know, keeping your own hair and, and, and in abundance is, is difficult, even with some treatments we'll, we'll touch on. You know, the good news is that it's not a health risk for anything. It, it shows you you've got testosterone. It shows the hair follicles in your uh, in your scalp are responding to uh, testosterone. And just out of interest, eunuchs, you know, guys who had no testicles at all in the in the Sultan's palace, you know, back in the Middle East or whatever. They never lost their hair, but that seems to be a very high price to pay. You've just taken <laughs> the breath away, Rob. <laughs> so, but this, you know, this is actually so, good, Rob, because I can tell my son who who can grow a beard, a full beard overnight, yeah. uh, and he has uh, hair on the back of his back and, uh, yeah. and so on. So it's everywhere else except on the top of his head. Yeah, I yeah, can tell him that it's uh, that he's got he's, he's full of testosterone, <laughs> testosterone, yeah. and I'm expecting grandkids. He's very, he's virile. Now, it does run in families, of course. You know, uh-huh. if your parents or uh, your uh, either side had, had premature hair loss or bald, you're more likely to get it. So, obviously, there's a genetic element to it. Uh, the hairs become thinner and shorter uh, with each cycle of growth, um, and eventually the hair follicles no longer have hair in them. It's interesting, you know, you think about hair being like a, like a little dead tissue just sort of hanging there. In fact, the hair follicle is a d- dynamic little thing. It has cycles where it, it grows the hair uh, longer and longer. It then uh, matures. Uh, the hair falls off. It becomes the follicle shuts down for a while, then wakes up and makes another one. So it's uh, continually rolling across uh, the cycles of growth and loss. And unfortunately, um, those cycle lengths get mucked up in balding men and with age, and eventually the hair gets shorter and shorter and shorter and, uh, and the growth phase is reduced and you end up with basically a little tiny hair and then no, no hair and the follicle sort of it, it no longer has hair in it. So there's a problem with the, with the cycles of hair. And so um, it's interesting you only lose the hair on your scalp. You don't lose it on your chest or in your nose or anywhere else where hair wants to grow, but it's just on your hair, which is the one thing. So, look, it affects about one man in five in their 20s, about one in three in their 30s, and about half of men in their 40s already have evidence, if you go looking for it, for hair loss. So this is super common. So how is hair loss treated, Rob? 
Well, most men, as I say, don't do anything. Uh, they uh, they change their hair lots. They go for the number two, uh, and they wear hats. And uh, they, you know, there are plenty of rock stars and movie stars and role models who do that, and uh, they'll look like them. And so that becomes Kojak comes to mind. Yeah, you know, Kojak is pretty severe, but but uh, you know they model on someone else, and yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not to say what what the girls think about this, but uh, but uh, you know it's very common. Uh, in each trip to the local pub, you'll see plenty of guys with with such shortly cropped hair and a little bit of thinning on top that you wonder what they're able to grow if they weren't to keep trimming it, and so they don't move ahead. Of course, if you're only in your twenties and thirties, it can be quite distressing. Yeah. Uh, losing your hair can make you feel less confident. And, uh, you know, people end up getting, you know, psychologically quite concerned about this, see counsellors and, and, and so on about it. And you can tell by the number of people who ring up for these ads on television and on internet mm. and, and able to find themselves in various sorts of reputable or disreputable treatment pathways. That's driven by concern. They didn't make yeah. the call because they had to. It's because they wanted to. Yeah. So um, they usually, uh, you know, will, will ask for some sort of review and consider whether you can do something about it. So speaking speaking of those um, questionable treatments, is the right place to start your GP? I think so. I think so. The the the, the, the dermatologists uh, and you know the 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 who would be the, the specialists who the GPs may refer to, who have uh, knowledge about some of the drugs uh, and uh, strategies, in, including obviously knowing about hair transplant uh, surgeons and the like. You need to get to a reputable pathway. I, I'm not sure about uh you know ringing up 1-800 numbers and so on uh you always have the feeling that necessarily they might not have your whole holistic care in mind but they just want to sell you something in particular so look there are medications that can can slow or or retard uh one some years ago called uh, finasteride which is still used um and it's finasteride is a drug that blocks testosterone's conversion to a more potent form of testosterone called DHT and that happens in the hair follicle and so it, if you like it, it augments or it boosts the androgen signal to the hair follicle which in the case of a balding hair follicle is going to make it go balder quicker. So um, uh, this drug um, has been reported to slow the progression of balding and produce partial regrowth in about two-thirds of men. Uh, so it's a, it's a hormonal manipulation trying to reduce the strength of our testosterone signal in the hair follicle. I don't want to stop you just there, Rob, but DHT and um, for uh, finasteride or whatever. Finasteride, yeah. The, the one thing that pops to my mind is what's the side effects of uh, things that sound like this? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, you are you are intentionally putting a, a spanner in the, in the cog of one of the body's hormonal systems. Yeah. So you have to expect this possibility of side effects. I mean, yes, of course. So uh, uh, they're not common, uh, but they can be concerning and, and men often stop for that reason, or some men do. And in this particular circumstance, it is in the sexual area. It's reduced libido and occasionally erectile problems can be more common with, with that treatment. So if that happens, the guys stop it. Uh, but not in everybody. It's a minority get those sort of side effects. So some men are on these drugs for, uh, for years, a uh, long period of time. Uh, of course, when you stop it, as you eventually usually do, uh, it will go back. It, the process will just restore again and the hair will start to fall out again. So it's not a cure. It's a, it's a temporary break. 
but nonetheless, it is something that's easily done. Uh, it happens only a couple of times a week. It's quite easy to take. And uh, dermatologists uh, tend to be the ones who, who deal with that. There are other sorts of creams that people are, that put on put in their hair that, that also might have a, a beneficial effect. But really, the, the definitive way to have sustained long-term hair would be a transplantation where they're taking hair from other parts of your body. So if you're like south of the border uh, and uh, transplanting those in the scalp, which is a tedious uh, you know, thing to be doing, but it does work quite effectively. And you can all think of people that you've seen uh, who had tr hair transplants, and you kind of sort of see it if it's been done in like rows, like in a in like a like yeah. a lemon farm. All the trees are all in a row. They and they're supposed to try and mix it all up, so it looks like a more original random allocation, if it, if it were. But um, a good hair transplant is obviously expensive, but it is something that will last a very long time. It can cause some scarring and and so on. It, it's it's a surgical procedure. So look, honestly, for most guys, I think we accept it. Uh, reluctantly, as part of being a wise, older and ageing male, uh, younger guys do need to see somebody reputable. And I would go through a GP and a dermatology type person to get what's evidentially the best treatments. Uh, and if they wish to go the full hog, they can even talk about hair transplantation. But for many people, I think we just come to terms with it. It's part of our new person. Some great advice again, Dr. Rob McLaughlin. It's always great to listen to you on Ask the Doctor. Thank you. Pleasure. All the best. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. A big thanks to both Stuart Torrance from the Australia Men's Shed Association and Professor Rob McLaughlin from Healthy Male. By the way, you'll find all their past episodes online wherever you get your podcasts or scroll through the list at menshed.org. Don't forget, if you have a good topic in mind, send me an email. Write to the Shed Wireless at menshed.net. The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association across Australia and around the world. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Well, now it's time to talk to one of the biggest performers vocally, for sure, in this country, Mr. Daryl Braithwaite. And Daryl's had, um, you know, a, his career has been uh, almost a parallel of mine, you know, having a a lot of success in the 70s, and then uh, everything calming down. But he came back with a bang with that wonderful uh, track of his, The Horses. So here he is, our special guest, Daryl Braithwaite. Well, it's with the greatest of pleasure that we welcome to the Shed Wireless, Daryl Braithwaite. How are you, Daryl? Very well, John. Nice to be here talking with you. I mean, it's uh, something that keeps burning in my brain because I think it was about two years ago or two and a half years ago, I mentioned the word retirement to you. And um, and you were horrified at the at the I, thought of it. I remember that, John. I, I I explicitly tell that to people when I said, John said to me, "When are you going to hang up the mic?" <laughs> and I thought, "Hang up the mic? What are you talking?" <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was that long ago, but I remember you explicitly saying those words, "Hang up the mic." And I thought, "Hmm, hmm, why he's mentioned that." You know, sort of. well, it, well, it's something that you know. I think in the in the past, 
with with people that that you admire and people I admire. Yeah. Um, it didn't really apply, you know, because you used to be, you know, in in the old days, you were you were in you were popular, and then all of a sudden you weren't popular, and so you just sort of drifted away. I mean, like there's probably That's only right. the Rolling Stones out there that are, you know, still got that question in front of them, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just wondering about people like yourself, people like myself. What would it be that would make you think that way? Well, I think because that that situation uh, happened, or I, I was confronted with it, the retirement thing about maybe four, three or four years ago when my brother Glenn, twin brother, mm-hmm. yep. we were having a birthday, we were celebrating our 68th or 69th, something like that, and he said, I'm retiring tomorrow. And I looked at him and he worked as a, in the blood department, cardiology in Geelong Hospital. And I said, I looked at him with this look of horror, thinking, what are you, what, what are you going to do? You know, like, I guess that's, um, that's what you're confronted with. And, and in the music industry, as you would be well aware, it just seems sometimes that I, I think that you can probably go on for a long a long time until hopefully somebody, one of your good friends says to you, I think you should give it up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, either so you're, so, I mean, that was, yeah, that was the kind, kind of follow-up question, you know, and, and, and it's always, it's intriguing to me because, you know, do you decide or do you wait until somebody taps you on the shoulder? It's a question that we probably ask ourselves. I, I sometimes look in the mirror and I go, Gee whiz, you're up. Yeah, yeah, you're not looking as young as what you did when you were 40. But I think the thing is that if you're still getting enjoyment out of it and people aren't uh, or they're accepting of it, you know, when you perform and that you can still sing Mm. uh, and hit the notes and all that and your hearing's good and all that, there's no reason, I I guess, why why you should stop because it's enjoyable as yeah. you well know, and all the other singers and Absolutely. musicians, yeah, um, very privileged, yeah. And, and you give people a lot of um, uh, a lot of good feelings. You know, they yeah. It, it's just it's it's one that's one of the the great rewards I think with what we do is the feedback that you get from people. Absolutely. Well, here's here's hoping that you don't have to be tapped on the shoulder. But you know me, I won't be scared. I'll ring oh, you. Oh no, I know that you will, John. <laughs> And you won't do it in a subtle way. It'll be like, hi, oh, Daryl, how you going? Yeah, listen, mate, I reckon you should give up. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, not give up. I don't think you'd say it that brutally. You'd say, uh, what have you been, you got any other plans at all? <laughs> okay, let's go back. Let's go back to, let's go back to before you were in showbiz full time. Uh, you, you were a fitter. Yes, I was a, a but yeah, I was, I did a, an apprenticeship fitting and turning at um, Cockatoo Island Dockyards in Sydney Harbour uh-huh. and uh, probably did about, I think, four and a bit years and then we, we came to a, an agreement, Cockatoo Island Dockyards and myself, that they would let me go early and they'd give me my indentures if I left early because they thought it was a waste of time me being there. You know what? That's a carbon copy of what happened to me. 
really. <laughs> yep. I was on I was on my way to the personnel office to tell them I was leaving. Right. And the personnel officer was on his way to the factory floor to tell me I was leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and and you came both of you agreed that that would yes. be a good idea. <laughs> so that would have been around 1969, 1970, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and then the music, the music really did take over, Daryl. And uh, you know, you've had uh, one amazing career, especially with uh, with Sherbet. Yes. Um, things didn't go quite to plan after Sherbet broke up, did they? No, no. It was it was a strange time when when they when we broke up in nine, I think nineteen eighty three. Uh, then I decided to do club work or like RSL or whatever it was with my good friend and your friend, Johnny Dick. He he was like the musical director and drummer and I got charts made up and all this stuff. We played many gigs. Some were frustrating, some were good, and they were all a lot, <clears throat> a lot of fun. But probably at the end of after doing that for about a year, I really thought, no, that's, I can't do this anymore and... I was about to get married to Sarah. We were about to have Oscar, our first our child, in 86. And uh, so I actually went, uh, stopped working and then sort of run, ran out of money to a degree and went on the dole, mm -hmm. which was quite an experience. Um, and then they they were trying to find me a job and I think, I didn't work for about six weeks or something like that. Then they finally found me something uh, working on a, a road gang just out of uh, out of Mount Macedon there. And that was one of the, I guess, the tipping points that made me think. And because of their, some of the people that were working on that gang, there were about eight or ten of us, they would always say to me, God, what are you doing here? You know, you should be, don't you sing and this? And I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I think they were they were very instrumental, I guess, in in pushing me to uh, try and write or at least get a recording thing going again, um, and, and the motivation to do that, which and that's how it worked out. After that, I mean, that that's a great story, you know, to think that you've you've gone and and, and uh, basically back on the tools. Um, <laughs> And and the people that, that around you uh, that that are working with you have encouraged you to to, to get back into the music business. It's a great story. Oh, thank you. Well, they they were. I think they were probably as confused as what I what I was. You know, like yeah. um and floundering. I well, I was floundering, sort of thinking, what can I do? And then with the help, a, a lot of help and brain work from Sarah, my wife, then managed to get it together to end up recording the, the first album Edge and it came out on CBS or Sony as it's called now. So And that was uh that was nineteen eighty nine if I remember rightly. It was around that time and I used to look back on the days, you know, working on the on the road thing. I haven't run into any of them since then or which is quite strange. I'm sure you'd think that Maybe they might come up and say, "Oh, do you remember I was on the gang?" Or, but yeah, I haven't seen them. But a lot of years have passed, John. I guess. Yeah, true, true. 
you had incredible solo success, you know, after after Edge. It was just it's just been marvelous to see your career just go up and up and up. And then you had the uh, the same kind of thing that happened with me with Lovers in the Air with the a re-release of a song um, far surpassed what it had been in the, uh, the first time. Um, and the same with the horses. It's uh, just catapulted you and, and you are now totally cemented into the Australian psyche with that song. Well, it, it is and it's, um, it's, it's like your lovers in the air, which I have had the, the privilege of singing with you um, on, on many occasions and I look at that song like I look at the horses and yeah. They're two magnificent songs that endear themselves to people for obviously different reasons completely, but it's just fortunate and it's just the way it is that you and I have been lucky recipients of those songs. And yeah. And even talking to Ricky Lee Jones, who was one of the, the co-writers, mm-hmm. um, that was very interesting, finding out of her how how she wrote the song and her not knowing that it had been um, as successful as it had been here in Australia, but um, she does now. Yeah, until she got the check. Well, that's right. <laughs> She's probably looked at it and gone, "God, where's this from? Let down Australia, <laughs> Australia." Okay, but uh, no, she's fully aware. Uh, James Rain, who's a friend of yours and mine. Yeah, he, he was at the Blues Festival um, maybe about six years ago and Ricky Lee Jones was playing there and uh, James told me the story of he, she was playing along. She had done about five or six songs. Then she did the uh, she did this song called The Horses and James just said that she was just staggered because she couldn't believe that everyone knew the words. <laughs> And she has had also that, I think, when she's been playing here in Australia, she's had that situation where she started that song, The Horses, and she's looked down at the audience and they've gone, oh, how come she's playing the Daryl Braithwaite song? (laughs) And then she has to tell them that, no, no, I wrote it, Uh, which is lovely. lovely. It is lovely. It is lovely. And it's been been absolutely terrific talking to you, Daryl, and... um, and may you keep going on and on and on and never, ever retire. And, well, John, thank you, thank you very much for, for chatting with me. But I know, I know, as sure as hens lay eggs, you will tell me when to give up, hopefully. <laughs> okay? And I know. You'll probably do the same for me, I hope. <laughs> well, we'll be still playing. Well, next time we play up at Toronto, I'm sure we'll be able to get you up to do Lovers in the Air or even, dare I say, How's that? Well, how is that? Yes, of course. Well, you, yeah, I know. Well, that's there's another story. I'll relate that story much later. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you very much. But anyway, thanks, thanks again for joining us on the Shed Wireless, Daryl, and uh, my pleasure. All, all the success, and I hope to run into you very soon, as soon as all this lockdown is uh, is finished, and uh, we can get back together again. You will, John. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. With Rip Woodchip. Hey, Shadows, Rip Woodchip here. How are you all going today? 
It's my anniversary tomorrow, so I'm out grabbing a bunch of flowers and a few knickknacks for me better half. They say it's the thought that counts, but if that thought doesn't come with at least a half-decent bunch of flowers, I'd be in all sorts of trouble. Mind you, the most important thing is to not forget to remember not to forget. Been there, done that. Won't do that again, that's for sure. Hot tongue and cold bum for a week. She doesn't want for much, though, the old girl, but I reckon she deserves a medal for putting up with me all these years. As much as many ladies out there probably reckon I'm a bloody good catch, I can be a handful at times. But she just takes it in a stride. God bless her. She's got the patience of a medical ward in Mumbai, that woman. I rate myself quite highly, as you know. But even I have to admit I was punching well above me weight to score a lady like her. Must have got her at a weak moment. All that gin and tonic I was feeding her at the bugle die B&S poor worked. She knows how to push me buttons at times, but she sure knows how to keep me in check. She can read me like a book and knows just what I need to hear and when I need to hear it. Whether it's telling me to wake up to myself or that everything will be alright and go back to sleep. She just puts me mind at ease. And it works both ways. She knows I've got her back no matter what. And I don't take a single thing for granted. Marriage mightn't be for everyone, but I've always been a man of my word. And when I shook her hand on that day, metaphorically speaking, the deal was done and I was in it for life. It definitely hasn't been easy at times. And I'm sure we both had times where we thought about throwing in a towel. But when it came down to it, we both knew full well that there's no guarantees the grass is greener on the other side, if not full of bindi. And you've got to keep telling yourself that all good things are worth working and fighting for. They say a perfect marriage is just two imperfect people that refuse to give up on each other. I reckon it comes down to the three C's. Compromise, communication and combat. Choosing your battles. Being prepared to take a knock or two and making sure that you make yourself heard and listen to what's being said to you. And learning how to interpret helps a little bit too. That can take a bit of practice and needs constant update as the guidelines tend to frequently change. And most of all, say sorry when you know you've been a bloody wombat. And forgive, forget and move on. It's hard to drive in a forwardly direction when you've been looking in the rearview mirror. We watch our kids now with their own significant others going through all the trials and tribulations as we went through and just hope that they can stick it out like us. But sadly, no guarantees. They reckon one in three marriages fail nowadays. I wouldn't want to take them odds on a parachute. Anyway, fellas, I've got some shopping to do. I might even get myself a haircut. Love is definitely in the air tonight. Right, JPY? Now it's time to talk fishing with Butch. Well, it's time to talk fishing once again with Butch, and this time we're going to talk about what you can do if you're on the road. Sooner or later we'll be able to get away and um, these days the grey nomads tend to head from south to north to get up into the warmer climate. So I'm yeah. just sort of going to go through a bit of the things you should take on your trip and, and maybe how to enhance your, your fishing experience because let's face it, if you're away camping or you're caravanning or something, there's nothing better to uh, supplement your uh, diet with some fresh fish, seafood, you know, anything, mm. crabs, you know, lobsters if you dive and uh, crayfish all over the place. So I thought I'd start with, um, because we're heading south to north, we can either go inland, which is fantastic because you can go, there's a, just about every dam from Victoria right up to Queensland inland has got has been stocked and you're allowed to fish in most of those. Some some in Queensland have got to pay a, a nominal fee to fish, for, to fish them. But in those dams, it's really worth having yabby pots so you can get your own, you know, crawfish or whatever you want to call them that. Um, you get your own worms. 
Uh, if you want to use sperm, even <laughs> even Murray Cod will take boiled eggs sometimes. So you don't. Have well, to- they, you know, I've seen them do it. I've seen them do it down the Murray where they um, where they get the uh, the egg and they and they scratch a little hole in the egg and then they put the hook in. Yeah. The egg and then put the egg into the boiling water and boil the egg. Yep. With the hook in it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and then they and then they peel peel the egg, and that is your ready-made plate. <laughs> well, people think it's that's a bit strange that, that a fish would eat an egg, but don't forget, Murray cod an opportunistic feeder. For example, they'll eat ducks, uh, waterfowl, anything that falls, lizards, snakes, anything that falls in the water. So, obviously, if there's a nesting bird um, overhanging the, the Murray River somewhere, and an egg drops out out of the out of the nest, you know. It's a natural thing for them to eat that, so it's it's not as. Well, apparently, uh, the the uh, mouse is very uh, very big on the menu at the moment. <laughs> well, there are, there are mouse mouse lures available now. You can get them. Wow! Look, look just like a mouse with a with a hook in them. But anyway, that's the inland. So, and on on the coast, of course, if you if you travel, look, if you're traveling anywhere, the ideal thing if you want to catch fish is to have a boat. Now, I don't advocate for you know towing a trailer boat anywhere because. Once you get up in the far north, you're on dirt roads and they're just shocking. If you're heading towards um, Cape York, well, you just can't take a trailer, but it'll just smash around. So these days there's all sorts of gadgets to get a tinny up onto a roof. As you know, you've got a mate that um, had a tinny on, on his camper van, didn't he? Well, he actually, he he did a, he designed the uh, the big F-250 uh, so that he could, he could haul the boat and the trailer up onto the back right. of the F two hundred and fifty, and then hitch his caravan on behind the F two hundred and fifty. So it was a, it was a, an amazing package. But these days, anyway, if if you haven't got the wherewithal to do that, you can still just put a topper on top of your car or on top of your uh, camper trailer. There they go these days. A camper trailer is built to go over the rough roads, and you just tie down a, a tinny and get an eight to fifteen horsepower motor to put on the back. Well, you've got a collapsible boat. Well, I was about to get to that too because um, if you haven't got that, if you've just got a um, a camper a van or a trailer home, whatever you want to call it, you go on those folder boats and you strap it to the side of your, your vehicle and, as you know, that folds up to about the size of a large surfboard. Yeah. And you get to where you're going and you don't need a trailer. You just drag it to the um, nearest water and open it up and put the outboard on, off you go fishing. I did that. And, of course, you've got to have a life jacket on so nothing could be safer. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Those, those, uh, they, they're unsinkable. I know they said that about, <laughs> about the Titanic. In the past. Yeah, I do believe it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, uh, that uh, fold-out boat is – I've had three in it, three of us fishing in and catching barramundi up in crocodile-infested waters and we didn't feel unsafe, so – that's a very wow. good alternative. I, I highly recommend those. They're indestructible. They're easy mm-hmm. to, to fold up and they're easy to, you know, pull pull apart. All right. Yeah, the other the other thing I was thinking when you go up there, like uh, you, if you want to catch your own bait, there's nothing better than just taking a yabby pump, um, some uh, cray pots, um, yep. cast net if you're any good at that. Uh, a, a prawn net even. A prawn net, yeah, absolutely. Prawn scoop with a light, yeah, why not? Um, yeah. The further up you go up in Queensland, you can use a cast net. They're a bit awkward to yeah. use, but the local tackle shop will probably sell you one and show you how to use it. And they're fantastic mm-hmm. because you can not only catch mullet and, and uh, you know, all sorts of bait, 
you'll also get some decent prawns up there in the estuaries in Queensland and off the beaches. It's amazing what prawns they get up there just with a cast net. But getting back to uh, tackle shop, the main thing about going away fishing is to find the fish, as you know, John. So the most important thing is local knowledge and the best way to get local knowledge is to go to the local tackle shop, wander in there, just tell them you're going to be there for a week or something so they, you know, they, they, they probably get your custom during that time and just ask them, you know, the relevant questions. What's biting? Uh, what bait should I use? What tide should I fish in? What lures? And, yep. you know, most proprietors of tackle shops are only too happy to put, you know, put you onto good, decent fishing because they want your custom during that week. So whatever you do, don't go in there and just ask. Go in there and buy a few things, you know, a couple of, couple of local lures, um, some bait and whatever. And I'm sure I've, I haven't struck a single tackle shop owner in all my travels that if you approach it the right way, he doesn't come up with a little mud map and draw you, draw you a few of his favourite spots. You know, maybe they're not, you know, fantastic spots, but at least to put you on a fish. So that's a, that's a big mm. end. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's that's been great, and uh, you know, I, I, it's it's sad that uh, a lot of us uh, can't do that journey away from home at the at the moment because of what's going on. But like you said earlier, Butch, the time will come, and whether it's going to be next year or the year after, we'll all be here ready with the engines revving, ready to go. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, as it is, I've I've missed on a couple of trips already this year, and um, champing at the bit to get up there, but. Weeper was one location, then Northern Territory was another, and as you know, everything's been cancelled. So I've been spending a lot of time on YouTube watching all these fishing shows that are people up that way catching heaps of fish, and my mate up at Bellingen, he's been catching heaps and sending me photos of all the fish he's been catching. So I'd just love to be able to get to Bellingen, if if not even interstate, you know what I mean? (laughs) You've been there. Fingers crossed, well, it'll all be over soon. Yeah, let's hope they get vaccinated and we're out of here. Good on you, Butch. Thanks very much. We'll speak to you next time. Okay, mate. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. bye. Shedder in the spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Now we're going to we're going to go to all the way to Albany, one of my favourite places in the country. Uh, I love that little place, and we're going to talk to Gary Duncan uh, from the Albany Men's Shed. Hello, Gary. How are you? How are you going there, John? Oh uh, yeah, really well, really well. Um, so you, I'm hearing you started a campaign to organise your shed during the lockdown last year. Yes, and it, uh, and it went well. It, it did go well. It was one of those things that we tried to keep our members um, in lockdown, keep them communicating and and keep their stress and things from being locked down away. So we had to try and think outside the box as to what we would do to make that work. And one of the one of the ideas that we did come up with is every man has his own shed, whether it be his garden shed or his workshop or whatever at home. And if it's anything like mine, it's an absolute pigsty. So we worked the thing out with them all and we sort of had a little bit of a competition uh, with them and it was to clean your shed. So we got before and after photos of their shed and and um, they got in and, and cleaned cleaned their shed and made them all a little bit more workable. And right. uh, it, did, it worked exceptionally well and it kept the guys still talking 
to the other members, even though they couldn't see them face to face. Right. Fantastic. Now, apparently, apparently you uh, you exceeded your expectations with this little jaunt. I, exe- I exceeded my expectations um, <laughs> because my, my shed is the one that you got the photo of. Um, <laughs> and that was a four-bay garage and um, I had a track that I could sort of walk down if I still stepped over things to get to the other end of it. Um, by the and that was hanging from the roof and walls and everything else as well. Um, but by the time I'd finished, it was even workable. But don't go and have a look at it again now, will you? Very lovely indeed. So what's your background, Gary? Um, I'm only a broken down old plumber. <laughs> You're probably the only broken down old plumber I know. Most plumbers I know are incredibly wealthy. No, no, no. No, we come from the country. We're not cityites. <laughs> I tell you what, what a beautiful part of the country um, Albany is. Uh, it it really is one of my favourite places. Uh, I think I went there around about 1976 and I revisited um, probably 18 months ago, two years ago. Oh, I'm forgetting COVID, probably two and a half years ago now. And uh and it's it's a beautiful place, and and that of course is where um, where uh, most of the Australian troops left from Albany to go over to Gallipoli. That's right. Yes, and we've got a beautiful Anzac um, display and that up on the hill uh, centre, which is very good. Oh, it's terrific. Well, uh, say good day to everybody over there in Albany for me. And uh, like I said, I do love the place, and I love that beautiful harbour you've got, and. Uh, and it's it's a, it's got such a wonderful history and uh, and one hell of a rugged coastline. Um, I do love it. Thanks very much, Gary. Thank you. That's about it for now. But I'm really keen to hear from you about any of the topics in this episode, especially tool sharpening. Do you think it's a lost skill? And organising your shed. Oh. That reminds me. The photos are welcome. So drop me an email if you can to the shed wireless at menshed.net. You can also check out the shed online for a few extra bits and pieces. Plus, all of our past episodes are online at menshed.org. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for shedders. Till next time, for the love of shedding, keep it together. It don't matter if you work with wood. Whatever is your game, everyone's the same. Yeah, we can do it all at the men's shed. Short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, bald. In the shed, it's welcome one and all. Share the skills you know, we're all having a go. There's a helping hand in the men's shed. Something